Some stories were never supposed to be told. Stories that exist in the twilight between science and the supernatural, between history and horror. Stories that speak of terrifying things. Stories that you want to hear. Stories that you need to hear. Stories that will sink their teeth in and never let you go. My name is Mike Brown, and this is Pleasing Terrors. Episode 14, Condemned, Part 1, Welcome to Hell. It is 2.50 a.m. on February 9th, 2017, and I am alone inside the old city jail in Charleston, South Carolina, one of the most haunted buildings in the United States. It is a place whose history is so steeped in violence and misery that a residue of malice seems to seep from the pores of the brick and stone around me. There is a door to the outside not 20 feet away, and yet it feels like I am in another world. My plan is to stay here through the night. There is an old prison cot nearby, but I don't think that I'll be getting any sleep. I can't bear the thought of waking up and finding something standing next to me, but I doubt that I could fall asleep anyway. I've done my homework. I know the history of this place. I know other things as well. I am the only living person inside this building, but I am not alone. The Devil's Hour is almost here. It was exactly one month ago that I began work on the project that would lead me to being in the jail on this night. I have been a tour guide in Charleston, South Carolina for over 20 years. As part of our licensing process, Tour guides are required to undergo continuing education in the form of classes on a variety of topics, including history, botany, and architecture. In no small part, it is thanks to this broadcast that John Laverne, the owner of Bulldog Tours, Charleston's largest walking tour company, has invited me to conduct a series of similar classes on the art of telling ghost stories. It was in the course of planning this program that he offered to give me a tour of Charleston's old city jail. Bulldog Tours offers a tour of the jail every night. I meet John there late one afternoon. The jail is a gothic monstrosity. Two large towers stand at the corners of either side of the front of the building. The back is a large octagon. The building was built out of brick and then covered in plaster to give it the appearance of stone. Large sections of plaster have fallen away, and patches of crumbling bricks are visible on all sides. It seems at odds with its surroundings. There are children playing nearby. I can hear music coming from a passing car, and the wind rustling sheets on a nearby clothesline. But the jail is quiet. John, a Charleston native, used to sneak in and explore the seemingly abandoned building when he was a child. It was only later, as an adult, that he learned its history. 
you would be hard-pressed to find another patch of earth in the United States that has seen as much suffering and cruelty as the city block upon which the jail sits. This place, which on this chilly January afternoon is surrounded by so much life, has always belonged to the dead. It was set aside by Carolina's colonial government as a burying ground in 1685. It was a pauper's field, a burial place for strangers and criminals. In 1740, a storehouse for gunpowder was built near where the jail now stands. Forty years later, in 1780, during the American Revolution, Charleston was captured by the British, and American soldiers were forced to line up outside the storehouse and hand over their muskets. Some of the muskets were loaded. Somehow one of them was discharged inside the storehouse, causing a massive explosion that killed 200 people. In 1802, a building known as the workhouse was constructed nearby, its benign name hiding its awful purpose. It was a place where African slaves were tortured at the request of their owners. It was a place that housed devices like the crane and the treadmill that were conjured from the darkest inspirations of those that ran the city so that the slave owners wouldn't have to bloody their own hands. Late that same year, construction was completed on the jail. The original building was smaller than the current structure. It was a simple brick building 50 feet by 100 feet. After the inmates were moved into it in early 1803, it soon became apparent that the building was not suited for its intended purpose. It was freezing in the winter and an oven in the summer. The open windows often left the inmates exposed to the elements. There was little in the way of sanitation, and the building soon became infested with vermin and the inmates debilitated by disease. The building was expanded first in the 1820s and then later in the 1850s. It was the 1850s renovations which gave it the Gothic exterior it wears until this day. One of the reasons the jail was modified to look the way that it does was to make it more intimidating. It was hoped that a fearsome appearance would frighten the people who saw it and make them less likely to break the law and risk being sent there. During the 1850s, the jail yard, which was enclosed by 20-foot walls, was also used as a place to keep slaves who had been brought into the city to be sold at the slave mart. Potential buyers would stand on a nearby piazza and observe the people penned in like cattle, making notes about who they wanted to buy. During the Civil War, the jail was used to house Union POWs, the addition of the captured soldiers to the already swelling population of prisoners led to severe overcrowding. Many of the soldiers were forced to live out in the open in the jail yard, some not even having the benefit of tents. In 1886, a devastating earthquake severely damaged the building destroying its top floor, as well as a tower atop the octagon at the back of the building. Repairs were made, and the jail continued to function until it was finally closed in 1939. It is estimated 
that 10,000 people died within the walls of that building. For the next 60 years, it sat empty, except for brief periods when it was used for storage or temporary office space. In 2000, the city sold the building to the American College of the Building Arts, which worked to fix it up and put it to use as a school. In 2016, the school sold the building and moved out. It is now home to the Haunted Jail Tour, offered by Bulldog Tours. Bulldog has been involved with the jail for over a decade in a cooperative effort that brought in much-needed funding to the school. It was after the school first took over the building in 2000, and there started to be people in the building again on a regular basis, that encounters began to occur. David Dick, a carpenter working alone in the building, recalled hearing someone walking on the floor above him. As soon as he approached the stairs, the sound stopped. Others talked about hearing voices and the sound of a door opening. A few days before Halloween in 2002, a blacksmith named Jay Rice, who had been working on the building and had stayed late to finish up a project, was heading down a hallway to the exit at the back of the building. He was 20 feet from the door when he stopped. There was something there in the hallway ahead of him. It was dark, and he couldn't see very well, so he shined his flashlight down the hall. There was a tall, thin man standing to the right of the door. Rice said that the man had gray skin and hollow eyes. He started to walk towards him, but the man disappeared. Rice stopped and shined his flashlight around, suddenly seeing the man to the left of the door. Rice ran out the door as fast as he could. Charleston has always struck me as a place where the separation between the past and the present is less than absolute. Nowhere in the city is that more apparent than inside the jail. Time seems thin here. The events of the past, the horrors of this place, are very close. As we walk through the building, there is sunlight streaming in through the windows, but it is late in the day, and in the corridors and cells of this place, the shadows are beginning to grow darker, to deepen. After my visit with John, I was curious to take the haunted jail tour. I wanted to get the full experience. This was not the first time that I had been inside the jail at night. I'd come here 17 years ago to tell ghost stories to a group of high school students who had been working on a project with the college. At the time, I was completely ignorant of the jail's history. It was just a creepy backdrop to tell ghost stories. Now I knew a lot more about this place and I wanted to see what a nighttime visit would be like. The tour guide that night was Paulette Foley, a retired school teacher who describes herself as a former skeptic. She says that it was being in the jail that turned her into a believer in ghosts. She gathered the group in the yard outside the jail and began the tour. As I said, time is thin here, and as Paulette talked, I closed my eyes and could almost feel them there with us. The African slaves, huddling together and spending last anxious moments with their loved ones before they are separated forever. The Union soldiers, sleeping in filth 
as disease slowly eats away at them. All I had to do was open my eyes and they would disappear, but when I closed them again, they were still there, all around us. She showed us where executions were performed, usually by means of another one of those perverse inspirations that I mentioned before. In this case, a method of hanging that involved a catapult-like contraption that yanked the person off the ground by their neck and often separated their head from their body. The things she told us were both fascinating and horrifying, and she had not yet mentioned the ghosts. They were still waiting for us inside. As we prepared to enter the building, she offered a warning, hinting at the things that she and the people on her tours had experienced in the past. She talked about the sounds we might hear, about the things that might try to touch us. Not everyone could stand to be inside for the duration of the tour. She reassured us that if anyone needed to leave, she would bring them out immediately. She then led us up a set of stairs to a door, and just before she opened it, she turned and looked at us and said, Welcome to hell. I was the last person to enter. As the door closed behind me, the group was enveloped in darkness. The only light was a dim red glow emanating from a doorway a short distance ahead. Paulette led us into a room, and we found a replica of one of the torture devices once employed there. As we moved through the building, the stories grew more horrific. Every room that we visited was its own unique nightmare. Paulette shared some of the things that had happened on her tours. There were nights when people on the tour had been attacked. They felt a burning sensation on their back or their arms, and discovered that they had been scratched. Three long scratch marks. It was always three parallel marks. On another tour, the group was on the second floor when they heard a loud crash on the floor above them. They went up the stairs and discovered that one of the heavy cell doors had come off its hinges and crashed into the wall on the opposite side of the hallway. Our last stop was a small room on the ground floor and it was here that I felt something. I have been visiting haunted locations for 19 years. I have been in the presence of people having a paranormal encounter, but I had never felt anything myself until this moment. As soon as Paulette closed the door to the room, it was like the pressure changed, like I was underwater. I was so distracted by it that I had trouble following what Paulette was saying. Then she opened the door, and within minutes, we were out of the jail. It was then that I realized the magnitude of the experience. Only by returning outside to the real world could I fully appreciate how different it felt inside the jail. Only then did I realize how much it felt like a tomb. I decided to make this place the subject of my next episode. It was also at this point then I made a decision that many people around me would call into question, especially those who are familiar with the jail. Even though I recognized that it was a blatant violation of horror movie rules, I was determined to spend the night there, alone. For the first time in all my years of being around haunted locations, I had felt something, and now I wanted to do more than just tell the story. I wanted to be in the story, 
with no barriers between me and whatever else was there. With John Laverne's permission, I began to prepare for my night in the jail. On February 7th, I went on another haunted jail tour. I wanted to get another tour guide's perspective before my stay. On this night, the tour guide was Stephen Beard. Stephen has been a tour guide for many years. When not giving tours, he's an author of apocalyptic fiction. He has already written three books and is currently working on a fourth. His specialty is zombies, but tonight he will be talking about ghosts. Stephen is a big guy, but as he begins to talk, I can see the weight of this place bearing down on him. He has been giving tours at the jail off and on for over a decade. A few years ago, something happened. After we entered the building, we went into the first room. It is the room that contains a replica of the crane, a torture device used on both slaves and prisoners. It consists of two ropes attached to pulleys on the ceiling. The ropes end in loops. The unfortunate person subjected to this punishment placed his hands through the loops and the ropes were tightened around his wrists. His feet were secured to the floor with another set of loops. Then he was pulled up into the air by his wrists until his body was stretched out. He was whipped across the back with a cat of nine tails, thin leather strips embedded with bits of metal or glass. After the lashes were administered, the suffering prisoner's back was doused with salt, and he was dragged back to his cell. One evening, as Stephen was talking about this, one of the women in his group leaned forward as if she were about to collapse. Her body was then flung back against the wall. The rest of the tour group looked at her stunned as she raised her head and began speaking gibberish before collapsing to the ground. Within a few minutes, she was herself again, and she had no memory of what had happened. Stephen believed that she had been possessed. He called John Laverne that night and told him that he was done giving jail tours. Afterwards, he refused to come near the jail for three years. He returned eventually, but now limits himself to being in the jail only two nights a week. On the night of Wednesday, February 8, 2017, I arrived at the jail a little before 10 p.m. This was the night that I would stay in the jail alone, and I wanted to take one final tour. This time, the guide was Eric Lavender. In addition to giving tours at the jail, Eric is the owner of Charleston Pirate Tours. He is easy to spot as he leads his groups through the city, because he looks like he just stepped off the set of a Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Eric always has a smile and a warm greeting whenever I see him, which is why when I see him on this night, I start to have second thoughts about spending the night here. As he walks up, I can see that he's not smiling. There's no warm greeting. Eric seems very solemn. His expression is serious. And as he starts his tour, I learn why. Eric has made contact with a very specific spirit that inhabits the jail. It is the ghost of the jail's most notorious prisoner, and of all the guides that give tours here, it has fixed its attention upon him. As he explains before we enter the building, 
whenever he is in the jail, she follows me. His first encounter occurred on a night when he only had two people on the tour. They had just entered the building, and he had just closed the door when he turned on his flashlight. Standing behind the couple was a woman. She was smiling at him, and then she was gone. This was only the first in a series of encounters that would plague him as he conducted tours in the jail. He said that the incident that scared him the most occurred one night after he had finished his last tour and was closing the building before going home. He had turned off all the lights and was ready to leave when he noticed that the light in the crane room was on. He walked down the hall to the room and turned off the light. Now the building was pitch dark. As he turned to go, he heard a voice next to his ear say, It's time for you to leave. He ran for the door. Even before he revealed the identity of the ghost, I knew who he was talking about. Seventeen years ago, when I first came to the jail to tell ghost stories to a group of high school students, something happened to one of the chaperones. At the time, the American College of the Building Arts had just taken over the building and had hosted a group of high school students who spent a couple of days participating in a preservation project at the jail. As a reward for all of their hard work, they were brought back to the jail on a Friday night, and two tour guides were brought in to tell them ghost stories. I was one of those guides. We had set up a trail of candles from the door, down a hallway, and up the stairs to one of the larger cells. We led the students to the cell where we sat them down and told them ghost stories. At some point, one of the chaperones left the room and followed the candles back to the door. He then went outside and smoked a cigarette. After he was finished, he came back in and followed the candles down the hallway. Halfway down the hall, he stopped. There was someone there in the hall with him, standing in the darkness. He called out, Hello? But there was no response. He called out again, Are you with the tour? But still there was no response. He stepped closer and pulled his lighter out of his pocket. He held it up and clicked it on. There was a woman standing there. He dropped the lighter and ran back out the door. He stayed outside for the rest of the night. Sightings of this woman go back as far as the Civil War. A Union officer imprisoned in the jail reported looking out of his cell door one night and seeing a woman in a white dress walking down the hall. She didn't look at him, but just walked past the cell and disappeared into the shadows. While seemingly benign, the incident made such an impression on him that years later, when he was interviewed about his experiences during the war, he recalled the incident as his most frightening experience. Charleston is not only a city of history, it is also a city of folklore. Folklore is history and legend, fact and fiction, it is truth and lies. And Lavinia Fisher, the woman in white, is the queen of Charleston folklore. In 1819, people began to vanish on the outskirts of Charleston. For the most part, they were wagon drivers, usually carrying goods out of the city. One of them, 
was a man named John Peoples. Having gotten a late start, he decided to stop for the night at an inn located six miles outside of Charleston, appropriately named the Six Mile House. He was greeted by a beautiful woman who introduced herself as Lavinia Fisher. She said that she and her husband John owned the inn and that they would be pleased to have the wagon drivers stay for the night. While her husband took care of people's horse, Lavinia welcomed him into the inn and offered him some tea. Something about Lavinia bothered Peoples, and he noticed that the tea had a strange taste. He began to recall the stories that he had heard about wagon drivers disappearing in the area and decided not to drink anymore. He said that he was tired and asked to be shown to his room. As the night wore on, his sense of paranoia grew to such an extent that he no longer felt comfortable sleeping in the bed and instead opted to sleep in a chair in the corner of the room. Some time later, he was awoken by a strange noise from under the bed and was shocked to see the bed fall through the floor as a deep pit opened up beneath it. He crept to the edge of the pit and looked down into what must have been the basement of the inn. There he saw John Fisher looking back up at him, holding an axe, and surprised that his intended victim was not sprawled on the floor in front of him. Peoples broke through the window of his room and fled into the night. Many hours later, he at last staggered into Charleston and told the authorities of his ordeal. A group of men were organized and rode out to the Six Mile House, where the Fishers were arrested. A search of the property revealed human remains buried in shallow graves in the woods. Some said that bodies were even found in the basement. The Fishers were taken back to Charleston and imprisoned within the city jail. They would be held there for a year as their case worked its way through Charleston's legal system. According to the story, when they were ultimately sentenced to death, Lavinia protested that she could not be executed as she was a married woman and it was illegal to execute a married woman. In response, the judge promised that he would hang her husband first so that she would no longer be married when it came time for her to walk up the 13 steps to the gallows. On February 18, 1820, John and Lavinia Fisher were brought to the place of their execution. Lavinia had procured a white wedding dress for the occasion, hoping that some sympathetic member of the crowd might take pity on her and offer to marry her, thus saving her life. After her husband was hanged, Lavinia was led up onto the platform and the noose was placed around her neck. Realizing that there would be no reprieve, she looked to the crowd and uttered her final words. If you have any messages to send to hell, give them to me and I will carry them. And then they hanged her. After Eric's tour was over, I learned that there was one more event scheduled for the jail that night. In addition to offering tours of the jail, Bulldog also offers paranormal investigations, a chance for ghost hunters, both experienced and otherwise, to explore the jail in the middle of the night in the hopes of recording the paranormal activity that is such a frequent occurrence in the building. The tour guides hosting the paranormal investigation on this night are Joy Watson and Randy Johnson. In addition to being a tour guide, Joy is a freelance photographer. 
Randy describes himself as a recovering attorney. They are also engaged. I have to admit that I am happy to see them. They are both so bright and positive that they light up the building, and I can feel the shadows which had been growing all too close during Eric's tour recede, even if only for a little while. The investigation is not without incidents. At one point, Randy wanders off by himself. When he returns, he is visibly shaken. He tells us that he saw a young boy in one of the rooms upstairs. He said the boy was dressed like someone from the movie Titanic, that he was standing next to a fireplace, and then he was gone. Toward the end of the investigation, one of the girls in the group cries out and begins dancing around, grabbing at her leg. Another person in the group takes her into another room. When they return, they report that she has scratches on her leg, three parallel scratches running down the inside of her thigh. Two hours after it began, the paranormal investigation has concluded. Joy and Randy spend 45 minutes talking to me before they get ready to leave. It's 2.45 a.m., and Randy jokes that it is almost the devil's hour, the time between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m., when, according to superstition, witches, ghosts, and demons are at the height of their power and are most active. A few minutes later, Joy and Randy leave, and I am alone inside the old city jail in Charleston, South Carolina, one of the most haunted buildings in the United States, a place whose history is so steeped in violence and misery that a residue of malice seems to seep from the pores of the brick and stone around me. The door to the outside, the door through which Randy and Joy just left, is 20 feet away, and yet it feels like they are now in another world. I hear voices, and I think that Randy and Joy have returned. Then I realize that the voices are not coming from outside. They are coming from above. I hear the creaking sound of a heavy metal door swinging open. I am the only living person inside this building, but I am not alone. I look at my watch. It is 3 a.m. The devil's hour has begun. Please join me for Pleasing Terrors, Episode 15, Condemned. Part 2, The Devil's Hour, which will be released on Friday, February 24th. This episode of the Pleasing Terrors podcast was written by Mike Brown. It was recorded, edited, and mixed by Eric Stair at Charleston Sound Studio. If you would like to support the show, please rate and review Pleasing Terrors on iTunes. Your review will make it easier for others to find us. For more creepy news, history, and folklore, or for information on upcoming episodes, please visit us at Pleasing Terrors on Facebook and Twitter and at PleasingTerrors.com. Thank you for listening.